COVID-19 shut down South Florida's arts economy. We all live by the mantra that the show must go on, and then suddenly it couldn't. Performances, concerts, and productions came to a stop for artists and behind-the-scenes workers. But slowly, the curtain is rising again. I'm Christine DiMatte. This is a complete different world, and it posed unbelievable challenges. The theater itself can hold 6,000 people, but we are not selling more than 1,200 seats per show. I'm Tom Hudson. Today on the Sunshine Economy, arts after the COVID-19 intermission. We are living in a time when those of us in performing arts can't do what we do. Truthfully, I don't want the unemployment. I want to work. I began to get a paycheck about four weeks ago. It's all ahead after the news. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. And I'm Christine DiMatte. COVID-19 didn't just quiet the arts economy in South Florida. It shut it down for months. But slowly, the curtain is rising and the business of show business is returning. Today on the program, you'll hear from artists and executives and also the behind-the-scenes workers far from the spotlights who make sure the show goes on. You know, it's called show business. Um, No business like it, as Mr. Berlin says. Jeffrey Moss has been in the business for decades. He's a theater director who has led productions across the country, including South Florida. And his newest production opened about 10 days ago at the Wick Theater in Boca Raton. A chorus line is the first Broadway musical in the theater since the pandemic. Near the end of the show, after a dancer gets injured during auditions, the lead character, a director and choreographer, asks the group of dancers gathered... What do you do when you can't dance anymore? And you know, when we got to that moment in the show, we got to that moment in rehearsal, it just occurred to me, it occurred to all of us that we were living in this situation now. Uh, We are living in a time when those of us in performing arts can't do what we do. Performers, directors, and the -the behind-the-scenes workers are beginning to do what they do in the arts economy again, but it looks and sounds a lot different thanks to the virus. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, even as more people get vaccinated and businesses gradually relax their rules, South Florida's arts venues are still faced with a complicated and often heartbreaking dilemma. Many are trying to give their audiences the closest thing to a live theater experience as they can, while keeping audience members and performers safe. In the case of Miami New Drama, a solitary and melancholy walk from a shuttered theater to a parked car would eventually turn into a production that became so successful it had two extended runs in South Beach. And now it's headed to a run off-Broadway. Here's a sample. What are you looking for, melancholy boy? Nothing. Nothing? Is it someone you can't find? I'm not looking for anyone. You keep looking at me through the window. The curfew's at six. That's part of a play by Pulitzer Prize winner Nilo Cruz titled Amsterdam Latitudes, and it represents the lust segment in Miami New Drama's Seven Deadly Sins. The live theatrical event works like this, a short play for each sin, performed in seven vacant storefronts in rotation for about 90 minutes. 
small groups of theater-goers wearing masks and spaced apart for safety move from station to station outside listening to the actors through earbuds while the show was still running in Miami Beach, we got a chance to chat with Miami New Drama artistic director and co-founder, Michelle Hausman. Michelle, this production was your idea. In the midst of such a difficult time, with the pandemic and all, why the seven deadly sins as opposed to the seven heavenly virtues? <laughs> well, you know, I think it's a good way, the fun and in a way sexy way of exploring the human experience. And by giving the playwrights just, uh, you, you know, a broad instruction as greed, gluttony, it allows them to open up a great world where they can imagine, you know, not only uh, ideas about that sin, but ideas about our society as well, seen through through the glass of those sins. In terms of the venue choice, why Lincoln Road storefronts instead of another outdoor theater venue? Well, you know, Miami New Drama is located at the heart of Miami Beach on Lincoln Road. And, you know, I think that as I was packing my my, my bags, leaving the office uh, for what would be the last time in, in, in a few months as I was going back into my car, I saw, you know, all the empty storefronts and I thought uh, that, you know, this might be a really interesting place uh, to explore storytelling. And, you know, the, the actors can be at a completely different world than the audience, not sharing the same air. But uh, but we will all be really in the, in the same universe. We would be at least sharing uh, the same story and being together and seeing each other. And here's a bit of the play that covers the sin of greed. It's titled All I Want is Everything, written by Moises Kaufman. It involves a brother and sister trading barbs about the estate of their dead father. He said that his coffin would land in the ground and a minute later you would be talking about the inheritance. Are you trying to offend me? It's what he said. I'm an attorney. I know about these things. The sooner we figure things out, the better. Michelle, this is unlike any show that Miami New Drama has ever done. And in addition to making special accommodations for the audience, you also had to ensure the safety of the cast and crew. What have you learned from having to put on a show this way? Well, there's a few things uh, I've learned about this. One uh, is that, you know, the, the seven storefronts are about, you know, 30 or 40 paces away from the Colony Theater. But in reality, it's as if we were doing a play on the moon, because even though we are close to that building that we know very well how to do theater, this is a complete different world in which we had to bring power generators and, and create a whole system of lighting and of sound. And it posed unbelievable challenges. Uh, but also there was something very uh, familiar Every time you're creating a piece of theater, there's this always this feeling of impossibility when you start like, oh my God, this is so hard. We're never going to get it done. And then surprising yourself when that beauty arrives and you and it flourish in the place much better than you had imagined it to be. So really seeing it work, at, you know, at the scale of what we were able to pull off is really rewarding. That was Miami New Drama Artistic Director Michelle Hausman. And once again, Seven Deadly Sins, which premiered in South Beach, is now off-Broadway bound. Audiences will be able to catch the show this summer in various storefronts within Manhattan's Meatpacking District, starting June 23rd. 
For Andy Sandberg, the curtain was just about ready to rise on the musical he was directing last spring at the Maltz Jupiter Theater in Palm Beach County. We never had an official opening. No, we got through our final dress rehearsal, so about as close as you can get to production before we did have to pull the plug. In the musical he was directing when business stopped, how to succeed in business without really trying. COVID-19 took care of that for the arts economy. I suppose one of the silver linings was it just kind of gave a peace of mind that at least we all knew we were in this level playing field. That rug was yanked out from all of us, so I think there was a different level of empathy and understanding among fellow artists for that reason. People saying, how are we all getting the industries back? And I say industries plural because these are multi-billion dollar industries, the arts and entertainment, and people don't think of the economy behind them that drives so much of this. According to federal government statistics, the number of direct jobs in the arts in Florida, artists, actors, dancers, directors, hair, makeup artists, musicians, sound engineers, lighting technicians, film and video editors, it's all fallen by about 6% overall compared to before the pandemic. And then there's the ripple effect of the arts economy. It was generating over $4 billion in economic activity in the state in the years before the virus. Maybe one of the positives that's come out of this is people have learned to understand and appreciate that there is an industry driving this. And, and I always battled that. We're constantly trying to weigh, you know, how do you marry the creative versus the business aspect of it? Sandberg's full-time job is running an artist retreat on the Gulf Coast. And as business begins again, he sees how the germ has led to new types of work and where and how they're presented to audiences. I think commercial versus artistic versus business versus, uh, you know, nonprofit, it, all these terms kind of became a little more blurred and it just became the work is there. It's being made. You often hear in the theater world, is this commercial? Is this accessible to an audience? Is there an audience for this? Well, if it's not all about a particular demographic that can afford a certain ticket price and a certain specific geographic location, if it's not everybody working toward, you know, what is supposed to be Broadway as we know it, I think that opens more possibilities. So still to come, how an artist and stage manager explored their separate possibilities. Most people I know were laid off basically immediately and went for months and months on unemployment with no options. We have to reckon with how we arrived here and, and put some time into grieving and healing. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks again for listening and supporting public radio. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Christine DiMatte. COVID-19 forced art out of the studios, concert halls, and theaters. It meant stages were dark and fell silent. Seats were empty. Ticket sales and jobs disappeared. The commerce may have quieted for months, but the art continued just in new ways, new inspirations, and in some unconventional places, using what's familiar to address the fear, uncertainty, and fight against isolation. That's the combined sound of underwater recordings taken off Florida's Gulf Coast and of people reciting the Kaddish, the Jewish prayer of mourning. 
Although the prayer honors the lives of the departed, the words focus not on death, but on life and hope. The Kaddish is also part of how South Florida artist Sasha Wartzel has been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. The audio is part of their latest exhibit, titled Dreams of Unknown Islands. A few months ago, we spoke with Wartzel about their work. Sasha, who are the people on that recording? The voices you're hearing are um, my network of friends and colleagues, artists, writers, poets, um, friends that I invited to take the mourner's Kaddish and make their own ritual with it. Uh, then I asked them to record the sound of that process and to send it back to me. The prayer is not really recognizable in the audio you're using for the exhibit. So why did you take this particular approach? I worked with a very talented sound designer to process the sounds and to mix that with the recordings that I had made along the coastline underwater. And with this piece, I was really trying to evoke a feeling of, of haunting or um, of the ethereal, you know, evoking the sense of what's beneath, what's kind of bubbling up from below, what voices are calling out to us. Now, throughout the past year, there were times that you yourself took part in an online gathering of people reciting the Kaddish. Why were you drawn to the prayer? Like many people during the pandemic, I was really struggling with how to process feelings of loss, grief, isolation. And the Kaddish really provided a place where I could come together with others in a collective process and we could mourn individuals we'd lost uh, we could mourn the collective loss of lives to COVID-19, people we may not even know. Um, and what's really striking about the Kaddish to me is that it actually doesn't even mention death. Um, more so, it mentions peace. Um, and I found a lot of comfort in rooting into these Jewish ancestral rituals that are, are part of my lineage that are, are very much rooted in healing and mutual aid and taking care of one another. Much of your work, which includes filmmaking, has revolved around the Everglades and its fragility. Now, what parallels do you see between how we've handled the pandemic and how we handle ecological issues? One parallel is I think we often are rushing towards some kind of quick fix without taking the time to really unpack how we arrived at this moment. Why are we experiencing more intense and frequent hurricanes? Why are we experiencing sea level rise, toxic algae blooms? Why are we experiencing such mass death? Why are black, brown, and indigenous people much more vulnerable to the impacts of the pandemic? We have to reckon with how we arrived here and, and put some time into grieving and healing. And I think that's where the Kaddish, again, really resonated for me in this moment, that it, it inherently understands grief and mourning and loss as um, a collective process. It's something that we all need to move through together. That was South Florida artist Sasha Wurzel speaking about their exhibit titled Dreams of Unknown Islands. The exhibition was at Ulite Arts in Miami Beach earlier this year. 
While Wurzel combines sounds, some artists have had to compete with the noise of their new pandemic performance spaces. For two months, Miami City Ballet held seven pop-up performances. It called To Miami With Love. It held one in Fort Lauderdale, appropriately called To Broward With Love. In late February, the stage was the green asphalt of the underlying path in Miami's Brickell neighborhood. The second performance that day was a trio of dancers performing to Irving Berlin's Everybody Step, written just a few years after the 1918 flu pandemic. Everybody step if you want to see glutton when it comes to strutting over the ground. As the dancers danced and the music played to its second ending, joining the applause from the outdoor crowd was a metro rail train running on its tracks above the makeshift stage. space, especially spaces like the Underline that were in more of the urban parts of the city, we were dealing with trains. This is Kelly Brown. She's the production stage manager for Miami City Ballet. Motorcycle processions, bicyclists, all kinds of city noise, but it, you work with it. It's, it's a make it work moment. You have, I mean, what's the alternative? No art? That's the worst. Brown's job usually is done in the controlled environment of a dance studio or performance center. While the dancers are the center of attention for an audience, Brown is the center of all the elements of the show, the music, the lighting, the dancers. I am mission control, so it's a lot. (laughs) She's added the duties of ensuring the dancers and crew follow the latest COVID-19 protocols during performances and rehearsals. The ballet brought in an industrial hygienist, formed a COVID-19 task force, gathered advice from local health experts, and she became a trained COVID compliance officer. All of a sudden, I was like, no sharing, no hugging. We got to just get in, get out, get it done. Love you all, but we have to be really, really careful right now. So there was a, a culture shift that we had to do. I never thought I'd be discouraging people from gathering, but suddenly I was. She was able to keep her job as production stage manager for a few months as the pandemic wore on. But by the summer, she was facing a furlough before an administrative position opened at the ballet's school. Right before the pandemic started, uh, my husband and I had actually just purchased our house. So that was terrifying. As she's taken the ballet performances out of the theaters, Brown, like a lot of the artists and behind-the-scenes workers in the arts economy we've spoken with, hope that is one pandemic change that sticks around after the virus. One of the many beautiful silver linings of this pandemic was reaching people and audience members that I think might have been a little intimidated by coming to a more formal theatrical setting or there's a socioeconomic barrier there that prevents them from really being able to splurge on a ballet ticket. So to bring ballet to the people like that was also really exciting. And and feeling that audience reaction, and it was often, you know, young kids that were like, wow, that was amazing. That was what stuck with all of us. That was what it was all about. Still to come, how other art organizations have worked to welcome back audiences in new ways. This challenge has given us a reason to really think about our purpose in a bigger way. We've been trying to figure out what was going to be our contribution to these crazy times in a productive way. The theater itself can hold 6,000 people, but we are not selling more than 1,200 seats per show. 
This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check out our podcast by searching Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app and hitting subscribe. Thanks. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Christine DiMatte. As safety protocols and science have evolved throughout this pandemic and as vaccines have expanded, art venues have been welcoming back audiences, but not in the normal ways. Crowded lobbies, sitting shoulder to shoulder, knee to knee, sharing the experience of a performance, those are things of the past for now. Masks and staying socially distanced are the new normal as the arts economy restarts. The Adrian R. Center in Miami is one of many performing arts venues that shut down last year once the COVID-19 pandemic spread to South Florida. And like so many others, Arsht has been working on ways to bring the live theater experience back to its audiences. Since last November, the center has hosted physically distanced live music performances outdoors on its Thompson Plaza for the Arts. And earlier this year, our center added theatrical performances to its Live on the Plaza series. City Theater and Zoetic Stage are among the companies included. A few months ago, we spoke with our center president and CEO, Johann Zietzman, and Stuart Meltzer, artistic director for Zoetic Stage. Johan, open-air shows at large outdoor performance spaces like the plaza still have to come with their share of safety precautions. So how are you making sure people stay safe? Well, Christine, for us, the safety of our audiences, our artists, and our staff is really the main concern. Uh, when people arrive, they will have to answer a quick uh, wellness uh, questionnaire on their phone. The phone goes green if everything is good. They're good to enter, and their temperatures are checked our ticketing system is touchless, and then we shepherd them through to the plaza where the tables and the chairs are safely distanced, and every, everybody needs to wear a mask all the way through the performance unless they're eating and drinking. So we really look after people and their safety. Stuart, Zoetic is known for its eclectic range of theater that runs from thought-provoking and serious to just plain fun. Now, the series you took to the Thompson Plaza is titled Zoetic Schmoetic, and it's 80 minutes worth of improv comedy. Why improv? We've been trying to figure out what was going to be our contribution to these crazy times in a productive way. So for us, it was really important to do something incredibly safe, incredibly uh, community-oriented, Additionally, something that was going to make people laugh their butts off. And here are some of the Zoetic artists during rehearsal. And wait in line like everybody else, all right? You are not the next person, all right, to get the vaccination. But it's my box and I want it now. Please. <laughs> Boy, is that something that resonates these days. It's my vax and I want it now. Stuart, were the performers masked during rehearsal? Our actors are masked in rehearsal. They will additionally be masked in performance. The actors are miked, so we're going to be able to hear them very well. When you think about making sure that theater is available to people right now, how do you think about the role of theater in a way that's different from before the pandemic struck? We have a very big, big responsibility right now, and the responsibility is to our community. Uh, and the stories to be told. And I think with, with COVID, we came to a social consciousness. And I think that we're on a journey for a more perfect theater community, a more perfect way to tell stories. Johan. 
You know, I agree with uh, Stuart. Uh, this challenge has given us um, a reason to really think about our purpose in a bigger way. We're living at a time where not only COVID is a challenge, but we've got huge social tensions at all kinds of levels. And it's not just an American issue. This is a worldwide issue. Uh, we've become less nice as human beings with each other. And I think the arts is the perfect universal, non-threatening, non-judgmental language to teach us about social skills again, about compassion, about learning about the other. And so that language right now is more important than ever to bring us back, not just as we were before, but better. You've just heard Johann Zietzman, president and CEO of the Adrian R. Center, and Stuart Meltzer, artistic director for Zoetic Stage. In April, the Art Center began a partnership with the Night Owl Drive-In. That's a drive-in theater just blocks away. The first two films were Sound of Music and Fantasia. Outdoor shows, limited seating, masks for audience members, and ushers for indoor performances, that's all just the new normal for South Florida's big performing arts centers. The Arsht, the Broward Center for the Performing Arts in Fort Lauderdale, and the Kravitz Center for the Performing Arts in West Palm Beach all have announced the return of touring Broadway shows in the fall. The Palm Beach Opera also will be returning indoors next year after moving outside this year for the first time. In the face of the COVID-19 pandemic, opera companies have had to postpone performances and cancel entire seasons. Palm Beach Opera has been dealing with this challenge by moving temporarily from inside its usual home at the Kravis Center to outdoor venues. The centerpiece of this year's season was an opera festival held in mid-February at I Think Financial Amphitheater in the South Florida Fairgrounds. The voices you're hearing are LaTanya Moore and Michael Fabiano, singing the principal roles in La Boheme. They were just two of the renowned singers who made their way to Palm Beach County for the festival. The amphitheater where the festival was held is pretty large. We spoke with Palm Beach Opera General Director David Walker in February about the performances and safety protocols. Let's go back to before they even get to the theater. So they're driving up and they all will have to park social distance. They will then have to go through an entrance where the temperatures are checked, and then they're allowed to get into the actual gates of the facility grounds. Once they're in there, there's social distancing in the theater. The theater itself can hold 6,000 people, but we are not selling more than 1,200 seats per show, so that the social distance is more than what is required and then some. We're also requiring everyone to have their masks on the entire time. And how about for the orchestra and the performers and the crew? We wanted to follow all of the union regulations and guidelines. So with that, we do have a full orchestra. It's slightly reduced, but all of the instrumentations that you would normally see are there. And for our chorus, we have the full chorus of uh, sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses. All of the performers on the stage, as well as the stage crew, they all have to be socially distanced from each other per the recommendations. Much of the talent you snagged for the festival are renowned opera singers that usually grace the stages of the Metropolitan Opera and other major houses. These are international megastars of opera at the moment. And we've had so many of the artists come up to us and say, thank you for doing this. I have not sung live since March. I have not sung with an orchestra since February. I've not performed in front of people. 
That's incredibly important. I mean, not only for our community and our audience members, but also for the chance to provide these artists with a with a job. They can work. They can let their souls sing and let their artistry resonate. While the festival was still in the planning stages, Palm Beach Opera decided to set aside a block of free tickets for some people who are on the front lines of battling the COVID-19 pandemic, and they include healthcare workers, teachers, and first responders. We wouldn't be here without the first responders, the health and social service organizations, um, all of the medical teams. So we're reaching out to all of those organizations to try and celebrate them and just provide them with a joyous experience too because they're working so hard for all of us that they they deserve some joy and transformational power of live opera. We should all be doing this together. We should be lifting each other up and we should be celebrating everything we can in life. That was Palm Beach Opera General Director David Walker. The company recently announced it will be returning to the Kravis Center for its 2022 season. Still to come on our program, waiting for the television and film business to come back to South Florida. We are in the front line. We're dealing with the actor who doesn't have a mask while we're doing their makeup, even though we do. Truthfully, I don't want the unemployment. I want to work. I began to get a paycheck about four weeks ago. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Christine DiMatte. South Florida has a long history on the screen. From the 1960s... Lauderdale and Miami, straight ahead. Mm, smell that ocean. Mary, you look better already. The Bell Boy, filmed completely in fabulous Miami. Where Bell- Through the 1980s... To the Oscar winner Moonlight. This old lady, she stopped me. She said, Running around, catching a boy that light. In moonlight, black boys look blue. And to streaming video like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Okay, fountain blue. What things can I playfully lampoon about you in my act? Susie, a staircase to nowhere. A waterway? Hours before the cameras roll, people like Claudia Pasquale and Carol Roskin would be at work. Uh, they could be anywhere from 12 to 16 hours. 
from the time you get up to the time you get back home. We're usually in sometimes two and three hours ahead of whatever your crew call is. Let's say your crew call is 6 a.m. Sometimes we're in by four. Pasquale is a union makeup artist. Roskin is a union hairstylist. And we start the day to help get the actors ready and set the tone to start our day. And it's usually sometimes a minimum 14 to 16, 18, sometimes even longer day. That was before the pandemic. Both have more than 30 years' experience working in the television and film industry in South Florida. We spoke with them about how the pandemic has affected their livelihoods in the arts economy. My name is Carol Roskin. I am a local 798 hairstylist, also local local theater 500, and I hold multiple licenses and certificates in what I do. In film and television and theater, I am a hairstylist. You will take apart a script, meet with directors, producers, talent, so forth, create the look of the show, and then keep that consistency and give the confidence in your actors what they need so they don't need to worry about their hair and they can give you the best performance needed. You really create intimate bonds with your entire film crew and cast because we're working so closely together in everyone's personal space nonstop. Before the pandemic, it was pretty steady. Unfortunately, with the lack of tax incentive in Florida for films, Florida has gotten bad and I call it runaway productions have gone many other places. And so you look for work a lot of times outside of Florida now because there really hasn't been as much here as there used to be. All of us within the film industry, we're used to sometimes we make money and sometimes we don't. So the majority of us, myself, which I thank my father for, and my parents, we learned how to save money for a rainy day to where, okay, if nothing is coming in, we're able to pay our bills and so forth until the next. And our jobs are paying in to help us keep our health insurance. When this happened, everything came to a dead halt. So whatever you had saved and were able to do, you were grateful to have, but a lot of us didn't have that much or I should say, I personally didn't. I'm 100% single. I'm on my own. I have no help from anyone. It's been like, if you've ever seen a tumbleweed tumble down the street in the wind, and you just sort of watch it go down the street and wonder, hmm, I wonder if it'll blow back. It took me almost eight months before I could get unemployment. And I've been lucky enough to where I had one little, I got one call that had an independent thing going in, which was a lot less than what the unemployment is, but it was still something. So when the union hall called me and said, do you want it? It's like, of course I do. Anything that can come my way, I'm going to take it. I'm grateful. And then I was headed there that morning. I was getting ready to pull into the parking garage, which would have cost me $10 in parking for the day. And I had two cars in front of me when they canceled. Otherwise, I would have driven there and then been out the parking. When theater and film come back, for my job description as a hairstylist, you're standing over the actors. You're in their space. You're in this. It's it's evolving. I don't know what the new normal will be and the new comfort zone as it comes around. Truthfully, I don't want the unemployment. I want to work. Hi, my name is Claudia Pascual. I am a professional makeup artist for film and TV. I love what I do. I really love our industry because of how long I've been doing it here in South Florida. 
the crew that I work with, you know, the members of the crew have become like family. I mean, we spend so much time together, sometimes even more time than with our families, that that was one thing that I knew I would miss. We are in the front line. We're dealing with the actor who doesn't have a mask while we're doing their makeup. Even though we do, we have, you know, a mask and we have face shields. Since we stopped initially, when was that March, end of March, I didn't work. My first job back was in September. And I had gotten a couple of calls back, but I was waiting to see what protocols uh, were installed for our industry because I feel like we're like kind of the first responders, being makeup artists or hairstylists. The first calls that I got to go back to work started, I think, back in July. But I was very hesitant to go back to work. And I just waited it out for a little bit to see as far as what our protocols were going to be in order for us to go back to work. I was very nervous. And I was also felt really uncomfortable. And the first time that I went back to work, I was actually shooting a commercial with a well-known golfer up in Palm Beach. And we were at a golf course. And it was extremely hot. You know how... August, September is here in South Florida. It was uh, it was very, very hot. And my concern was just making sure that no tools touch somebody else. We have to work really quickly in our industry. And makeup artists and hairstylists are the first persons on the crew that deal with talent in order to get them out to set. So time is very essential. And that was one of my most um, top concerns was, okay, what am I doing? I need to work quickly, but I also need to be extra careful and also letting production know, you know, between each setup of each actor, I have to sanitize my station. I have to clean all of my tools. I have to disinfect everything I've used. So that took a while to get used to. It was something that was on my mind. Of course, you know, I've been doing this 32 years. I I do makeup. I can do makeup with my eyes closed. I always say that. But with this instance, I had to be really, really careful because, you know, I have somebody's livelihood in my hands. And also I have to watch out for my safety. So it was nerve wracking. It really was. When you sit somebody at your chair and you're doing makeup, I feel that because we are the first people that they encounter, we sort of put them at ease. If they're nervous, what they have to do for the day, the acting or whatever, you know, they have to do. I feel that that because of what we're wearing, our mask, there's like a barrier that they can't see our smile. It's become very sterile because it has to, but also it's not as engaging as a team member, it's not. Jane Johnson is back at work now on a film production. You may not recognize her name, but you probably have seen her handiwork. My feather in my cap was the 1959 period television series called Magic City that was on Stars. that was all about Miami Beach. But I did Bloodline uh, feature films. I did uh, True Lies. I did Ace Ventura and I did Cool Runnings and I worked on The Sopranos. She's been a set decoration buyer for more than 30 years based in Miami. I run around and hunt inanimate objects uh, for both television and for motion pictures. I may negotiate the rental of a $14,000 desk for a CEO on the 57th floor. And then from there, I'll go and try and pick up trash 
in order to dress a crack alley. TV and film production, like the rest of the arts economy, stopped last spring. Johnson's union paid her health insurance as she waited, and she received unemployment. During her downtime, she thought about whether or not she'd come back. Approaching my 60th birthday, I've been contemplating it anyway. What I would do has been an ongoing uh, silent saga in my head. You know, maybe we want to get out there and do something that impacts the world in a bigger way. I don't know. I've actually thought of politics. (laughs) But she has returned to the arts economy, just not working in South Florida. With the end of tax incentives for television and film production in Florida several years ago, a lot of that work has shifted to other places. Johnson spoke with us last week from Georgia. I began to get a paycheck about uh, four weeks ago. I'm working on a film now. Um, I prepped in Miami and then came up here to Atlanta to work on it. She says she returned only after being vaccinated. The production is testing three times a week. And the day before we spoke last week, her department was closed because one person tested positive for COVID-19. Johnson's test was negative. Still to come, sound and safety. Something new came onto my plate, which is that I did a a Zoom-style performance, although it was a lot more complicated. We've created a different type of rehearsal. <laughs> so it, it, it doesn't necessarily look like rehearsal as it used to be. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Christine DiMatte. Like so many businesses, the arts moved online during the pandemic. It was an effort to stay connected, even if it was an imperfect pivot with tinny sound and jumpy video. For a theater sound designer like Ben Pegg in Key West, the pivot presented an opportunity. Something new came onto my plate, which is that I did a a Zoom style performance, although it was, you know, a lot more complicated graphic design, like media graphics using post-production tools to take 40 audio and video signals and make the people dance around and make it interesting to watch. Luckily, I was able to pick up a virtual concert that I did. Peg used to spend some of his professional time creating sounds to take audiences out of a theater and transport them into the performance. It's never boring to me. I mean, sometimes it's just a phone ring, but even that can be fun, depending on the period that the piece is done in. But it's just all about making sure that the performance that we're capturing, that what we're doing is making you buy it. It's making you believe what you're seeing. It's really fun to do that. And I think when you're doing it right, it sort of disappears. You don't notice it. You notice it when it's wrong. You don't notice it when it's right. Before the pandemic, Peg worked with the Waterfront Theater in Key West and is technical director for the Key West Literary Seminar. He also has a background in information technology, so that's helped generate income. And he says he was rescued by a piano. He is a Steinway-approved piano technician. There wasn't a lot of pianos to work on down here, and then the pandemic hit, and all of a sudden, I had three to do. The pandemic boredom has had people returning to a lot of pastimes, like piano playing. It also has forced big changes for how professionals create music. (laughs) 
A group of people standing indoors, shoulder to shoulder, breathing in and out in unison, often letting out forceful, prolonged expulsions of breath. That is choral singing. Once COVID-19 started spreading around the world last year, group singing was also among the activities that became very high risk. Researchers found that the very act of singing generates large amounts of aerosolized virus if any of the performers is infected. Many groups that had to stop performing last year, from church choirs to major chorales, are still working out ways they can safely sing together again. Last November, Miami-based professional choral ensemble Seraphic Fire launched an online season. Recently, we interviewed Seraphic Fire founder, artistic director, and conductor, Patrick Dupre Quigley. Patrick, for that season opener, the members of Seraphic Fire recorded their parts remotely from their own bedrooms or bathrooms. Is that the way you're still rehearsing? Uh, yes, we've, we've created a different type of rehearsal. <laughs> so it, it, it doesn't necessarily look like rehearsal as it used to be, so... And what about performance? What safety measures are in place for the singers and the orchestra? Uh, well, they're all recording their parts from home. Uh, since actually since August, a lot of our members have had to transform parts of their houses into their own studios. And so we'll rehearse over Zoom and then people will record their individual parts uh, by themselves in their homes and in their home studios. And then uh, we edit in post-production. We put that all together. You launched the season with secular music written during times of plagues and pandemics throughout history. Patrick, what discoveries did you make about how those composers dealt with the suffering all around them? What they did is is talked about some of the some of the ideas that we um, in our situation are experiencing as well. Things like longing or um, separation or about how important friendship is. How else is the pandemic influencing your choice of music? For example, are you choosing pieces for fewer singers? Uh, We are not necessarily. We're choosing pieces that we can accomplish in this sort of telephone way that we're performing. So uh, pieces that have uh, particular aspects like steady rhythm or uh, pieces that have not a lot of ups and downs in terms of volume. These are the things that communicate the best over the media that we're using currently. Um, And there's an entire range of, of music that we aren't able to perform, but we, we sort of we knew that we had to continue making music because there's all sorts of music that can be made. And so, um, you know, we tried to stick with the art of the possible during these times. That was Patrick Dupre Quigley, founder, artistic director, and conductor of the professional vocal ensemble Seraphic Fire.
follow us on Twitter at WLRN. Look for us on Facebook and Instagram and a podcast of this program by searching Sunshine Economy. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Christine DiMatte. Thanks for listening.